Well, if you've got a bulletin on the way in, there is a sermon outline in there, and I would invite you to pull that out. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we're coming closer to the end here. Going to finish this up in the next month or so. Uh, but today, we are in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 19. Many of you know this, but we have a very old cat at our house. His name is Scooter. He's going on like 16, 17 years old. Longer than I thought cats were supposed to live. But, and he, he just keeps hanging on. Uh, Scooter's primary role is to uh, annoy me with his whining on a regular basis. And he's very successful at that. Uh, his mom loves him, and that's why he's still around. But... Uh, Scooter, you know, Scooter doesn't do a whole lot. Other cats have to work for a living. Uh, for instance, let me show you a picture here. This is uh, Larry the cat. And Larry the cat was celebrated for having completed, just this past month, 12 years as Britain's chief mouser. Guy, uh, guy actually has a title in Great Britain, chief mouser. Uh, I came across a 12-photo piece about him. And not surprisingly, none of these pictures show him carrying a dead mouse. But that was why he was hired. Back in February of 2011, shortly after TV cameras caught a, a rat outside 10 Downing Street, which is the Prime Minister's residence, uh, you know, they showed this rat on TV footage. So the cabinet, under who was then Prime Minister David Cameron, went and found a four-year-old cat at the animal shelter, and that's how Larry got hired, and appointed him as Chief Mouser. And if you go to the, the government website, you know, for Great Britain, uh, you find a profile on Larry, and this is what it says about Larry. Larry spends his days greeting guests to the house, inspecting security defenses, and testing antique furniture for napping quality. His day-to-day -day responsibilities also include contemplating a solution to the mouse occupancy of the house. Now, you know, some people might question the, uh, the value of a chief mouser. Uh, if you actually, you know, go down this rabbit hole of seeing what Larry does all the time, there is a viral video out there from last November when a fox showed up outside of 10 Downing Street and Larry chased the fox off. I mean, it's pretty impressive. We got caught on the, on the video, the whole thing. But uh, he has survived the transition of power of five prime ministers. He's got his own Twitter feed. So I grabbed a picture of Larry the Cat's Twitter feed. And in, uh, on the Twitter feed in November, he posted, well, he did, probably didn't, but somebody posted for him. I live here permanently. Politicians are temporary residents. Some very temporary. Um, that's about right. Chief Mouser is, is probably a title that Scooter would like to have, uh, but I have no evidence that he's ever proven his value in that regard. He just kind of hangs out, eats food, and um, leaves cat hair everywhere. Uh, I'm not sure that Scooter, or Larry for that matter, really understands his job, you know, what he's there to do, what his job involves. And I say all that to get to this, sometimes I wonder if Christians really do too. Sometimes I wonder if Christians really understand what is our job, you know, what is our role, what are we supposed to be doing for God. One of the very clear messages in the New Testament about life as a follower of Christ is that we each do have a job to do. We each have something that God has gifted us, that God has equipped us, that God wants us to be doing for Him. Uh, a gifting that has been given by God that He expects us to use for His mission in the world. And there are several pictures about that. 
throughout the New Testament. I went back and scanned some of them this week. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. They all use that analogy, that picture that the church is a body and every one of us is a component in that body of Christ. And just like your body, you know, your hands have a purpose, your feet have a purpose, your eyes have a purpose. Uh, every part of a body has a needed function. That's true of the body of Christ, that the church, every one of us has a role and a needed function, and if we're not all doing what our role is, the body isn't going to be healthy. Uh, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, uses the picture, the analogy that the church is a building. Jesus is the foundation, that every one of us are bricks that are built on that, that provide structure and beautify that structure by being in our intended spot and, and doing what we're part of that building to do and, and to accomplish. The church is a body, the church is a building, and over and over again, uh, 1 Timothy 5 is one of the best places, but over and over again, the the analogy is used that church is a family, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I was growing up, and when my kids were growing up, being part of a family meant you had a job, you know, you had chores to do uh, on a weekly basis and sometimes on a daily basis. And that's all part of those pictures of Christians all have a job. We all have something that we should be doing uh, for God in our world. Uh, that idea that every person in the church has a part to play. It's all over the New Testament, but it was introduced first by Jesus uh, in a couple different parables. And one of them is the one that we come to today. So uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, if you've got a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, if you'd find verse 11, that's where we're going to start. Work down through uh, verse 27 together this morning. Now last Sunday I closed on a very mission-minded verse. Uh, chapter 19 and verse 10 reads, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago with that purpose, with that mission uh, in mind. He, he came fulfilling prophecy regarding the promised Messiah. Uh, he came demonstrating that he was more than just a good teacher, more than just a popular figure by doing miraculous things and teaching in profound ways with authority that no one else had before. But most people, even those who were the closest circle around Jesus, most people did not fully grasp the mission that he was here to accomplish. And there he puts it pretty plain. Came to seek and to save the lost. Those who were lost. Now they were about to see how that was all going to unfold. The, the final trip to Jerusalem is drawing to an end. The Passover is going to take place in the next week. Uh, very soon, within days of this passage, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt uh, beneath waving palm branches and cha uh, chants of Hosanna, save us now. Now the excitement of what we saw last week, this blind man being healed, just added to that anticipation of Jesus arriving as the promised Messiah, Israel's Savior King. But the assumption was that that meant uh, that Jesus was going to establish an immediate kingdom. The assumption was that Jesus arriving in Jerusalem meant a military victory, a literal throne in Jerusalem, and dominion over the known world. That was what they longed for. That was what the Jews expected the Messiah to do when he arrived. And they were partly right. Jesus was and is the promised Savior King. But his kingdom was not ready to be established in the form they expected it 
just yet. First, he had to do verse 10. First, he had to seek and to save those who were lost. And he had to accomplish his mission. And so knowing their thoughts, knowing what was going on in the minds of those around him as they were approaching Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, Jesus told a story. Both my granddaughters love books. Uh, it is rather amazing to watch them with some of their favorites at just three and a half and two. You know, they've got their favorites and they drag them out of their rooms. They know the stories. They point to the pictures. They can follow along. Uh, Ada is our oldest granddaughter, and she can't read yet, but she can recite several of her several of her favorite books uh, on every single page. Uh, if Mimi starts reading the page, Ada can finish the page. She knows exactly how it goes. You know, at a very early age, we're, we're drawn to stories. Toddlers are sort of pulled along by the pictures. Uh, but later, the words create pictures in our minds, and they, they draw us in, don't they? You know, life is sort of lived in a series of stories, and Jesus knew the intrinsic power of story. And over and over again, he would tell parables. And this is one of the last ones that we have recorded in the Gospels. But he tells a story here. It starts in verse 11 of Luke 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now I titled the sermon today A Parable for Our Time because Jesus describes what is happening uh, in our day. It describes uh, what he describes here just fits into the day in which we live. When Jesus was first telling this story, the, the disciples, the crowd traveling with him, they didn't know what the next week was going to hold, just like you and I don't know what this next week is going to hold for our lives. They had no idea that in the next seven days or so that Jesus would die on a cross, be buried and then raised from the grave on that third day. They had no idea. They were hyper-focused on this is the Messiah. He's going to set up the kingdom at once, right now. This is going to happen uh, when we get to Jerusalem. And even after all the events that took place in the next week, the disciples still anticipated that happening very soon. Uh, happening, uh, you know, uh, before long at all. There's, in Acts chapter 1, you find a record of Jesus' ascension back to heaven. And it's kind of interesting, the last things the disciples ask him as he is about to ascend into heaven. Uh, they gathered around him, this is on the Mount of Olives, and this is the question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? You know, how about now? How about, how about we do it now? How about you set it up now? The last thing on their mind was still wanting the kingdom and expecting the kingdom to be established. They didn't realize that there was going to be this period of time between when Jesus came and provided salvation, seeking to save the lost, and the establishment of his literal kingdom here on earth. Now, we have a better idea about that because we're 2,000 years removed. 
We're 2,000 years uh, past the events of the New Testament. We can see that Jesus came then to provide salvation, then to save those who would become part of his kingdom. He's ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. And at just the right time, he will return. He will come back. He will establish that literal kingdom here upon this earth. They didn't grasp it yet. They thought it was going to happen right now. And so Jesus tells this story. Now, it was a story with some historical similarities. About 70 years prior uh, to Jesus' life, Herod the Great was appointed king, client king, because he was under the overall ruler of rulership of Caesar. But uh, Herod the Great was appointed client king of Judea. And Herod went to Rome, appealed to Caesar for the opportunity to be called king of the Jews. And Herod the Great built so many things throughout Israel. Uh, he became extremely paranoid. Uh, he was the one that uh, was the Herod over uh, Israel when Jesus was born and killed all the babies in Bethlehem and all that sort of thing. That was Herod the Great. He had gone to be appointed king. When uh, Herod died, and it happened soon after Jesus was born, his son Archelaus did the same thing. He made the trek all the way to Rome to appeal to Caesar to be appointed king. And it's kind of interesting. At that point, there was a delegation that, that uh, went along from Israel opposing that. They didn't want him to be king after all that his father had, had done to their people. People. And so Jesus takes this kind of familiar details that they you know, knew from history class and tells a story that's quite similar. Tells a, it tells a story of a man of noble birth who goes to a distant country to be appointed king. And some opposed him. Some even hated him. They sent this delegation to say, we don't want him to be king over us. But he became king anyway. And then he returned. Now, if as much as I read there, if that was just a story uh, about, um, you know, that didn't have any context, it would be interesting, but not that important. But Luke has made a very clear connection already. He began by, by opening... Jesus knew that, that the people in his entourage, all these individuals that were traveling with him, Jesus knew what they were thinking and knew that, that they assumed he was going to set up the kingdom right then. That the kingdom of God was going to come to earth at once. And so he tells a story to sort of sort out things for his friends. And it's a story about himself. You know, we can see that. Um, it's a story about himself. Jesus knows that he's the king. And he's experienced some of what his story uh, describes already. You know, he's already been uh, often opposed from those that don't agree with the assessment that he's the Messiah. Uh, and it's only going to get worse in the next week. But he is king. He knew already that he was going to leave and that one day he would re return. And so, some important takeaways, I think, from this. Um, the first one is that to realize that Jesus is the king. He's forever existed as the king. Uh, he has existed forever as the son of God, as the sovereign over everything. And though our world, and our world you know, may identify Jesus as this historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ is much more than that. He walked this earth to accomplish the mission of verse 10. He came to make salvation possible for every person who would believe. But then he ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne in heaven. And one day he is going to come back. 
he's going to return. The king has left, but he is returning. And Jesus' little story highlights that. He's the king. He, he's left uh, planet Earth, if you will, physically for now. But he's promised over and over again that he is going to come back. There's one Bible example I, was, I thought of this past week. It's found in the early cha chapters of Acts. Uh, the church launched in Acts chapter 2. Um, leaders were chosen. One of the first deacons was a man named Stephen. And his, his very bold testimony drew a lot of hostility uh, from the religious leaders that had put Christ to death. And Stephen would become the church's first martyr. Uh, but as he was being very brutally murdered by this angry mob, something very interesting happened. It says in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 54 and 55, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard what Stephen had just said, uh, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Gives the sort of pulls back the curtain. You get this vision of where is Jesus right now? Right at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling over everything, in charge of it all, sovereign over the universe. In Revelation 19, uh, describes how one day he's going to return and his identity is going to be obvious as he rides in wearing a banner that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus is. He is the King. And one day he is returning. And in one sense, everything and everyone, even today, is under the sovereign reign of Jesus. But a lot of people don't know that, and some actively oppose it. Yet that doesn't change that it's true. He is king, and he will return. We live in the period, this, this in-between time, of waiting for that to happen. Waiting for his return to materialize, to take place. We live in the period between those two things. But that is also where most of the story focuses, the between time. Uh, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that, yes, he was king, and he knows that. He's going to go away and be appointed, if you will, and then return. Um, the literal kingdom in Jerusalem was still future. The form that they wanted wasn't going to appear just yet. He was leaving for a time. But in the meantime, in the middle, there was something that he wanted them to do. And that's where most of this passage focuses on. Uh, if you go to verse 13, we read it already. That introduces the bulk of the, the parable with this line. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, at, at a different point, Jesus told a very similar story. You've probably heard of the, the title of the parable of the talents. Talents is referred to a bag of gold. Um, but uh, in that particular story, uh, Jesus uh, described a businessman who gave money to his servants, and they were different quantities and whatnot. And it's very, very similar uh, to this story, but they're two different stories. You know, the, the parables that Jesus told were uh, stories that he made up to make a specific point. And here, the rendition Jesus tells focuses on a king, and that's for obvious reasons. Uh, but the king calls in ten of his servants, gives each of them a mina. 
Now, that doesn't mean anything to any of us. I realize that. Uh, a mina was a Greek sum of money. It was equivalent to about three months of salary. So you can do the math for yourself, you know, figure out how much you make a month and multiply that by three, and you got a, an idea of what he was describing here. It wasn't a massive amount of money, but not a little bit either. Uh, quite a little, quite a, a chunk of, of money to to give to each servant, gives that to 10 servants, and gives them the very clear instruction, put this money to work until I come back. This is for you, do something with it, and I'm going to come back. Verse 15 picks up that part of the story. It says, He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. King comes back, starts to call on servants, and we only have the record, you know, Jesus only talks about three of them here. The first two I just read there. First servant took the single mina, this, this one piece of uh, a coin or whatever that he was given, and he, he multiplied it. He earned ten more with it. He somehow had invested that, he'd been strategic, he'd worked hard, but he multiplied the king's money. And when the king comes back, uh, he hands over eleven minas when he started with one. And, and the reply, the commendation is very positive. Well done. His faithfulness had produced results, had borne fruit. Uh, his faithfulness to use what he'd been given brought results for the king and it brought a reward for himself. Because Jesus, as he tells the story, says that he's promoted to have supervision over, over ten cities in the kingdom. That's servant number one. Servant number two comes in and, and says, Sir, I made five minas with that one. And hands back six coins when he'd been given just one to start with. And that too, not as big as the first, first one, but that too brought accommodation. That too uh, brought... A reward, uh, increased responsibility in the kingdom. But the third guy is kind of the point of the story. And uh, verse 20 and verse 21 introduces us to the third servant. It says, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Third servant walks in with that one coin in his hand and said, here it is back. Uh, you gave this to me. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, stashed it in my dresser drawer. Here you can have it back. And notice his reasoning. You know, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in. You reap what you did not sow. And think about that. That's kind of unflattering talk. Uh, he is really no way around it, is sort of smearing the king's good name, you know. Um, would have fit in well with the crowd that opposed his appointment. But he was told to do something with what he had been given. Instead, he just stashed it. Instead, he didn't bother. And in the end, he sort of blames the king for his own ineptitude, for his own lack of desire to even try to do something with what he had been given. 
He was supposed to be doing what the king wanted him to do in life, but he didn't. And then, given the opportunity, he badmouths the king's character, subtly accuses him of being in the wrong. He was entrusted with something to use, didn't do anything with it, blamed the king in the end, when he's the one who chose not to do anything with what he'd been given. Now stop right there for a second and the question, you know, how is this a parable for our times? And the answer, I think, is this. God has entrusted every single one of us with something to do. He has entrusted every single one of us with something to invest in the kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, God has given you something to do to move that mission forward, to, to reach this world for him. Every one of us has been entrusted with something to invest in moving the mission forward in our world. Now, what's the mission? I read Acts 1-6 earlier, right before Jesus ascends back to heaven. The disciples, on their mind is, well, what about now? You know, is this when the kingdom is going to be established? Read what comes next, verse 7. This was Jesus' answer. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. So, so you don't need to focus on that. It's not for you to know that. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies. He was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. That, that, that passage kind of lays over this story. Jesus said, uh, you know, they're all focused on, it. what about now? Is this when the kingdom happens? And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come. You're going to have power, and you are to be my witnesses. And then one day I'm going to come back, just like you saw me leave, just like you saw me go. That's in Acts 1. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit does arrive. Uh, the first church in Jerusalem is born. The age in which we still live between Jesus' first arrival and second coming began. But the instructions, the instructions are just so important there. Wait for the Holy Spirit, then go and be witnesses about me. Go and reach your world with the message of who I am and how I changed your life. And that mission that he gave those 12 guys, that's not done. It's not finished. Today, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have a part in that mission. Now, we're all unique. Every one of us is different. We all, you know, have different backgrounds, different life experiences, different abilities, different circles of influence, if you will. Um, but each of us are called to be witnesses in, in our Jerusalem of Jesus. Um, we're each called to use the gifts that he's given us, the abilities that he's given us, uh, to serve him and help our local church accomplish that mission in better ways. And, and on how that looks for all of us is, is uh, unique because we're all different. But you've been given something, and that's what I want you to think about. What's your unique mina? What is your area of interest, your area of ability? What is it that Jesus wants you to do for him in this world? Uh, last Saturday, I was uh, home working on a few things. 
when I walked through our living room and noticed there was something red on the outside of the glass of the front door. And uh, I opened the door to find this balloon taped to the front door. Now, I mentioned before that we have this little video doorbell on our house that's kind of a toy of mine, you know. And so I could go on there. It comes in handy in times like this. I could go on there and see who came up and taped a balloon on the, the front door and discovered that uh, two sweet young ladies who are our neighbors had decided to brighten our home with this uh, balloon, you know, taped to our front door. Uh, it contains a smiley face on one side, I don't know if you can see it very well. And a message on the other, give a helping hand and change a world. That was pretty sweet. And it did brighten my day, you know, to have uh, the, them think of us and want to, to sort of brighten our day a little bit. Uh, they didn't have to do that, but in their young minds, they were thinking, you know, let's uh, be a blessing and, and uh, challenge to the ferals. And I, it's kind of fitting. I, it fits with this story because for them it was a balloon, you know, that's what they had as little girls, you know, something they could use to, to be an encouragement, to be a blessing to somebody else. But for you, you know, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a text message, maybe it's a, a slot in the nursery every couple months. Maybe it's sitting with squirmy kids in Awana while they're trying to memorize verses. Maybe it's connecting with a teen as a prayer partner. There's a lot of ways that you and I can do God's work in this world, can move the mission forward. So many ways to make a difference and use the gifts that you have been given to expand the kingdom. But it takes work to do that. It takes decision to do that. Um, and it's always easier to make excuses. This, this third servant, he comes up with the lamest excuses uh, to sort of justify not bothering to do anything when the king had told them he should. And too often Christians do the same thing. It's easy to make excuses. We're all busy. Uh, we, we all have so much distraction. We all have so many other things. We assume ministries can be handled by other people. That Somebody else will do that. Um, but the mission is only accomplished by people that take their role seriously. And God entrusted you with something. God has entrusted you with something to invest, something to do, a job, if you will. And I really want you to ask yourself this morning, what is that? What is it that you do for God to make the mission happen in your world and in our church? Now, how you answer those questions has some repercussions. Because the last thing to put on there is there is a day of accountability bringing reward and its opposite. Look how this story closes. Verse 22, his master replied to this third servant, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. A day of accountability comes for all people. 
a day of accountability. Bringing reward for those that have, that have used what God has given us and bringing the opposite for those that have rejected him. The two servants who are faithful to obey uh, and use what they've been given, they produced varying levels of reward there in the first part of that story. Not the third guy. Um, the, third, the third servant who made excuses rather than doing what the king instructed him to do, he lost it all. He lost everything. Um, for servants of the king with a potential, uh, we all have the potential. It exists for either reward and commendation or uh, the loss of that reward. And for those that oppose the king, the story just sort of ends on this very ominous note. Jesus makes the point that there is a final and ultimate judgment for those that completely reject me, that completely turn away from the king. There's a day of accountability. Reward for faithful obedience, judgment for those that have turned away. Now, what do we make sense of that for our time? What do we, how do we plug that into our lives? I've got three, three takeaways here I want you to think about. Here's the first one. If you're a follower of Jesus, God expects you to do something with what he's given you to do. God expects you to do something with what he has given you. What are you doing for Jesus. Last fall uh, at the um, MARBC conference, I heard a pastor speak, Steve DeWitt, from, uh, he's a pastor in Indiana, and so I've listened to some of his sermons since then. And in one of the sermons, he, uh, he built on the illustration of how we are all parts of the body. And, you know, some are hands, some are eyes, some are ears, all of that sort of picture of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, and all those passages use that analogy. It's very helpful. But he went somewhere that I never expected. It sort of stuck in my mind that it came back out uh, this past week. In his sermon, he said, there are some Christians that appear to be an appendix. Now, we got some medical people here this morning, and I'm sure there is a reason. We just haven't really figured it out yet. But from what I understand, uh, most people, most, you know, medical People don't really understand what an appendix is there for. You know, we've never, we haven't figured that out yet. Well, there's got to be a reason or God wouldn't put it there, but other than maybe for a good sermon illustration. Um, but people just don't know what an appendix is for. It can get infected. If you get appendicitis, it can be extremely serious and it has to be removed. But you can have your appendix yanked out and go on with life as normal because we just do, it doesn't seem to do anything. It just sits there. And, uh, you know, Steve, Steve used that in his sermon uh, to put down the challenge, don't be an appendix Christian. Uh, appendix Christians sit there and sometimes irritate others, but don't ever seem to do anything. And, you know, bold, but somewhat accurate. Somewhat accurate. Um, yet, frankly, that should never be true. Because you've been given something, I've been given something to do. We've got to decide if we're going to do it. God has given every one of us something. What are you doing for the body of Christ? Here's the second thing. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. And that, that day's closer now than it was yesterday. He is going to come back. As we draw closer and closer, as that time draws nearer, you can expect the things that Jesus told in his parable to continue to happen. 
Uh, you can expect hostility toward Jesus to increase. Um, Jesus stuck into his story that some opposed his appointment as king. But in the end, their hostility doesn't change the fact that he is king, right? And that he will reign. And um, we live in a rapidly changing world. And it seems to me that more and more opposition, if you will, is rising toward Christian belief. We sort of have the alphabet letter priorities happening in our society right now. And the more that that, more that, that becomes culturally the norm, the more opposition there will be towards uh, Christian morality, Christian belief about sexuality and all those sort of things. Uh, you can expect that churches and those that are serious about uh, what the Bible says is true are going to be marginalized. Uh, I really believe that that as the time draws near, we can expect hostility toward Jesus to increase. Um, don't be surprised by that. But the second half maybe is what concerns me even more. That as time goes by and, and sort of life happens and Jesus hasn't come back just yet, it is very, very common for Christians to just sort of become complacent. To just adopt the, the whatever mentality of our world. And as the world changes and we're influenced by it, the potential drift towards that, towards complacency, towards not really bothering anymore. Um, toward making excuses, toward setting church and your walk with God on the back burner. That increases too. And I really want to challenge you to guard against that. Push back on that. Um, Jesus is coming back. Make sure that you're ready for that. Which kind of leads to my last one. Faithful obedience with whatever God has entrusted to you will bring future reward when Christ comes back. And so serve with the end in mind. Serve with that, that view to the end of the story, view to Christ's return. I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes back, I want to hear what he said to the first servant. I want to hear, well done. You finished strong. Uh, you were faithful to use what I entrusted to you. And if we live our lives with that focus, uh, if we live our lives with a focus on Jesus and pleasing Him and one day hearing those words, it'll change what you do on an average weekday. Uh, it'll change your priorities. It'll change your schedule. It'll give you a passion to find ways to be a witness and accomplish Jesus' mission in our lives. But so much of it comes down to where we choose to focus our attention. Do we focus on our problems or the fact that Jesus is king and he's in charge of it all? I can trust him. Do we focus uh, on the latest distraction that occupies our minds or do we focus on the unfinished mission and how today can I be a part of accomplishing what God wants done in this world? Do we focus on the darkness or the hope that's found in Jesus and the fact that he is going to come back and could come back today? Where you focus changes the direction you move. And so this week, I really want to challenge you to, to focus on Jesus as our highest and our only hope. It's completely true that Jesus is coming back. You can believe that. Uh, do this week what you want to be found doing when he returns. This week, do what you want to be found doing when he shows up. Because if we will live that way, you can be certain that he'll reward the things that you do, the impact that you make when you one day stand before him.
there is hope for our times because of Jesus. He is king. He is coming back. He's provided for the salvation for the lost. And very soon, we will get to see him face to face. Live with that end in view. So you bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm thankful so much for the reminders for me this week that Christ is coming back and that I need to live in light of that. I need to live with that end in view, with that perspective always in my mind. Uh, and to focus on doing what I wanna, want you to find me doing. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you'd help. Help me, help all of us. Live with that end in view. Live with that focus in mind. And this week, Lord, guide us forward and have hope in a dark world and a difficult day. Hope to trust and hope to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.